So with that, I'm going to jump into um, our talk tonight, which is on suffering. Um, the Greek philosopher and skeptic Epicurus lived around the third century, and he had this dilemma about the existence of evil and the potential existence of a good and powerful God. Epicurus said this, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not all powerful. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is not good. Is he both able and willing? Then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? For Epicurus, there was a tension, if not a contradiction, about seeing evil and suffering in the world and believing in a good, all-powerful God. But even as Epicurus asked this question in the third century, literally at least a thousand years before him, the Hebrew author who created the story of Job wrestled with a very similar question. How can a good God allow so much suffering? And particularly, why does suffering occur? And unlike Epicurus, though, the question is not just philosophical, but it is personal, which means I believe that any answer to this question about how a good God can allow suffering needs to be both logically and emotionally satisfying. So what I want to do tonight is cover three questions. One, where does suffering come from? Two, how does Jesus provide the only logical and emotionally satisfying explanation to suffering? And three, what do we do in response to suffering in our own lives? So first, where does suffering come from? We need to start off by saying with rare exception, it does not come from God. In the opening of the Job story, we can see quite clearly that God is totally in charge. He is all-powerful and that he does allow suffering, but that he is not the cause of suffering. In fact, one of the central points behind the story of Job is to refute the notion that suffering means God is punishing you, that he's mad at you, that he wants to throw a lightning bolt at you. Well, Job is saying that while God can punish people as a part of his justice, Job is saying that by and large, that this is not the case, and it was not the case with Job. Instead, Job echoes a consistent theme of the Bible that says the cause of suffering is sin. Sin, according to scripture, entered into humanity and the world when our ancestors, for the first time, collectively rebelled against God and decided to worship themselves as God. And this broke the cosmic and relational harmony between God, humanity, and creation. The effects of this rebellion that humanity has participated in ever since can be categorized as sin, and sin causes suffering. So specifically, how does sin play itself out? How does it work against the goodwill of God? Well, there's three major causes, the first of which, which we have to acknowledge and we see in Job, is Satan, who gained access over humanity when we rebelled against God. We were under the protection of God, and we became, and we fell into the camp of Satan. And now some of you are thinking, whoa, are you saying Satan causes suffering? Like, the guy with the horns, we kind of made fun of him last week. Like, we're modern people. Do we really believe this? And I think if you're honest and you look at Scripture, you have to acknowledge that if you believe in the Bible at all, you have to acknowledge the reality of Satan. In fact, if you believe in the teachings of Jesus at all, you have to acknowledge the reality of Satan. Because even Jesus teaches extensively about the reality of Satan. 
And the Bible says quite clearly, Jesus actually says this quite clearly, the mission of Satan is this, to kill, steal, and destroy. And in our story today, the author of Job places Satan as the motivating, but not always direct force, but at least the motivating force behind all the terrible things that happen to Job. But Satan and demons, as evil as they are, they are still limited, finite beings. They can't be in all places at all times. And even though we need to acknowledge that the devil is alive and at work, really he could probably take a vacation if he wanted, because we are far more of the problem, which leads us to our second cause of suffering, which is free will. The vast majority of suffering that exists in the world today is because of our free will. God did not make us robots without a choice. He designed us to be agents of choice so that we could choose to love our neighbor and love God. Because love can only exist when there is a genuine choice. You cannot have love apart from genuine choice. So when we exercise our free will sinfully, when we choose not to love our neighbor, not to love God, Suffering is created. Job experiences this in her story when his estate is attacked multiple times by bandits. And history has shown many cases of people doing terrible things to one another. Every bully child, every murder, every genocide can be explained by the abuse of our free will. Now those are the obvious things. But also poverty, exploitation, Starvation, war are the result of people using their free will in such a way that directly or indirectly causes the suffering of others. Now, free will explains most of the suffering and evil we see in the world, but it doesn't explain all of it. There are, after all, hurricanes, earthquakes, cancer. I don't think people are really causing those. So while we have to acknowledge that there is human evil, there is also what this thing is called natural evil. Because remember, when humanity rebelled from God in Genesis, it was not just the harmony between God and humanity that was broken, but that somehow sin rippled into nature itself. When sin entered the world, it was a cosmic act. Nature itself is injured. So as you read Job, and as we see even today, sometimes nature wreaks havoc and destruction. Nature causes suffering. But the good news is that one day God will bring nature back into perfect harmony with his will. The New Testament writer Paul says this in a letter to Romans. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. But this harmony will come as a result of humanity being brought back into harmony with God as well. God will not just restore nature and leave us broken. God will not just restore us and leave nature injured. According to scripture, we can look forward to the day where God will reconcile all things, no exception, to his goodwill. So logically, this explains how there can be so much suffering. 
that this level of suffering is not caused by God. It is not desired by God. But because of sin, we have given Satan access to our lives, whether we are aware of it or not. We directly and indirectly cause the suffering of others, and even nature itself has been impaired by the cosmic effects of our rebellion. Now, that logically gives an account for the suffering you may see on TV or read on the internet, but it is not a satisfactory answer, I believe, for the suffering that we will experience firsthand. Because perhaps you know someone who's gone through some really terrible things. Or perhaps you yourself have already suffered greatly, either because someone has hurt you directly or there's been a terrible accident or maybe you're even suffering from a disease. And this logical response, well, sin happenings happens because of sin. It just doesn't cut it for you. You want to know not just why this is happening, but what is the point of the suffering? And that's what Job demands of God. But God's response falls short of the answer that I would like to hear. If you read the end of Job, it's a lot of chapters. You get to chapter 40, Job demands of God, I want an explanation for all my suffering. And this is what God says. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. He basically tells Job to shut up. And trust him, because he's God, and Job is not. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that, that doesn't do it. Just saying God's ways are beyond our ways does not give me a satisfactory response to personal suffering. This is the great failure of just believing in a generic God whether deistic or theistic, that's just up in heaven because this God has never had to experience the suffering he allegedly has a good reason for. To make the argument that God has a good reason for suffering, but our brains are just too finite and small to figure out, it may be logically satisfying, but it is not emotionally or spiritually satisfying. Because I guarantee you there will come a time in your life if it has not come already where you will experience suffering to the point where you will not see what good is coming out of it and perhaps you will think i don't see what good could ever come out of it and we will feel as the existentialists of the 20th century said completely absurd pointless suffering and it will feel incompatible with a so-called loving and good God, just sitting up there in heaven somewhere, looking down and not really knowing the suffering or the pain you feel. And this is why the explanation of suffering cannot be complete without Jesus. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh, the perfect man, and he lived among us. He knew our suffering firsthand. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but is without sin. Not only, though, did God live with us, he allowed himself to be tormented by us. 
therefore providing the second difference and the answer to suffering that a belief in a generic God will not get you. That when Jesus, the Son of God, was murdered on a Friday afternoon by humanity, it was the greatest evil perpetuated in the history of humanity. I mean, we killed God. And from the vantage point of the next day, Saturday, as the disciples hid in this locked upper room expecting that they were going to be murdered next, they really felt completely absurd, pointless suffering. And from their vantage point on Saturday, their teacher, who they had given everything for, lay cold and dead in a tomb. And truly, logically, the death of Jesus made no possible sense. If God was really a good God, if God was really there at all, shouldn't have Jesus been rescued from the cross? I mean, wouldn't that have made more sense, God? What good could ever come from the death of God's Son? But then Sunday came. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God transformed the greatest evil this world has ever seen into its greatest glory. So what does this mean for us? It means that because of the challenges and the losses and the tragedies we have experienced, all of us here live part of our life in a state of Saturday. We have known hurts and suffering that we do not have answers for, that we have not seen God work out for good, and we don't understand how it possibly could. But Sunday will come. And I can't tell you when that Sunday is coming. For some of you, it may be tomorrow. For others, a few years from now. For some, even when you are face-to-face with God. Yet if it is a historical reality that God could transform the greatest evil the world has ever known into the greatest good, then it is not wishful thinking that he will one day transform the greatest suffering that we have ever known into such a radiant joy that it will cause us to praise him for it. So how do we respond then to suffering in our lives? I have three suggestions. One, We do it honestly, like Job did. We don't need to put on a happy smile before God. We don't need to go around saying life is great when it really sucks. That is not being a good Christian. That's just being a weirdo. And if you need to have some honest words with God, go ahead, say them. He already knows what you're thinking. God is bigger than your anger. God is bigger than your frustration. And he is patient enough to keep his arms open for you. Two, we respond to suffering in expectation, particularly prayer. Prayer is the vehicle which God communicates his truth, his reasons, and his peace to you. Scripture calls this that you can even receive the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that when people look at you go, I have no idea how you have peace. And somehow, supernaturally, God gives you peace. So pray for yourself 
and invite others in your community to pray for you as well. That is not being selfish. That is being authentic about your needs. And God will use expectant prayer to bring understanding. And I don't mean the shallow understanding of like, well, okay, now I know why me. I mean the, the deeper understanding where God redeems your suffering to give you an understanding of what it means to stay close to God and to transform your character in such a way that it could not have been changed otherwise. Because guys, let me tell you as an aside, I don't know if you have seen this yet in your life, but the people that I respect the most, the people who I feel are the wisest, have gone through great deals of suffering in their life. But they have used prayer as the vehicle to help move suffering from meaninglessness to a meaningful tool of life change. And lastly, three, we respond to suffering in trust. And I want to be clear here. This is a reasonable kind of trust in a specific kind of God. I don't want you to have wishful thinking that some generic God has some ambiguous plan for your life and your suffering. Your life is too important to trust it to some distant God up in the sky who doesn't know what you're going through. Instead, trust in the historic precedent of the risen Jesus, a suffering Savior who promises to never leave you or abandon you and instead promises to actually suffer alongside of you in the Spirit. And Jesus doesn't even suggest this. He guarantees it on his life and his goodness that he is the one who can save you from your sin and bring you back to God the Creator. And that no amount of sin or evil will ever snatch you from God's hands. And that no amount or kind of suffering is capable, is not capable of being redeemed by God for his glory and your good. So in closing, take hold of this promise made reliable through the work of Jesus, written to people who were suffering greatly 2,000 years ago, written to the people of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. May that be a promise that you hear tonight and believe. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.